Good morning, happy Easter, and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's Easter message is the main key to understanding our ability and our commitment to do good. We will look at one of the best, if not the absolute best passage of Scripture in the whole New Testament. And as we do, we're going to seek to answer the question of how we can unite our efforts to do good with the good that God has already done for us. Thanks for listening. This being Easter Sunday, we have uh, the privilege of looking into God's Word again, specific to celebrate and remember the miraculous work of God to raise Jesus from the dead. We're in a series here at Grace called uh, Do Good, but it needs to be augmented today. It needs to be changed a little bit. And I want to offer to you this thesis for today, that you are incapable of doing good unless it's drawn from what God has already done. Let me, let me say that again. That's our starting point for today. You and I are incapable of doing anything good unless it's sourced and drawn out of what God has already done. And so we've changed it a little bit. It's not do good today. It's done. It's done. And what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has done for me, and what Jesus has done for all those who place their hope and faith and trust in him will accomplish for us that which we can never do on, a, on our own. I don't care how high you can jump. You and I will never be able to impress God. For we stand as those cursed with sin, and the law was given as that way of God kind of gathering together all the ways in which sin corrupts us. And yet Jesus did what you couldn't do. Jesus did what I couldn't do. Jesus fulfilled the law and thereby became a substitute for you and I. Now, we're going to be in an awesome passage. It has to be at the very top of almost every preacher's and theologian's passage. If there's one book in the New Testament you're going to love, it's the book of Romans. If there's one chapter in the book of Romans you're going to love, it's chapter 8. And if it's the bread and butter of the passage, it's going to be verses 1 through 4. So that's what we have today. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. Romans chapter 8. And... Um, and there's a lot packed in here. I mean, if you were a miner and you were mining your way with a pickaxe through the New Testament, you would be chopping away and chopping away. And when you hit Romans chapter 8, you'd go, whoa, I'm going to need a big truck to carry all of the gold and all of the treasure that's found in these short few verses. In fact, it has all of the ologies in it. It has soteriology and hamartiology and Christology and pneumatology. And it also has all the Asians in it for the atonement and propitiation and redemption and justification and sanctification. I might have put some of you to sleep saying all that. But if, you're a, if that gets your mortar running like it does me, you know this is going to be a three-hour long sermon. So... Uh, we're going to try to squeeze all of it down into just the remainder of our time here today. Uh, Jesus has done good so that you and I can do good. As I was uh, desiring to figure out how do, how do I begin to, to handle all of the wealth and treasure that's in this passage, it occurred to me that it might be best just to handle it according to its flow, according to its layout. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that up here on the screen and you'll be able to follow along 
Um, right there in the sermon notes, I've, I've divided it up. In fact, uh, the, the verse divisions here are going to be helpful for where we're going to track with it for today. Um, but let me read through it first of all, and then we'll divide it up, work through it, and then offer just a few conclusions and a couple applications for us to apply to our lives this Easter um, as we seek to worship God together. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Your Bible might say flesh. That's okay. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. All right, as we are seeking to unpack this passage, I want to start right at the very beginning. In verse one, you're going to have an answer to the question uh, for what God has done. Remember the thesis of our morning here. Uh, You are only able to do good because of what he has done. So what is it? What is it that God has done? First of all, we'll see what God has done to us. And in verse 1, you'll see this great treasure. I mean, there isn't a truck large enough to handle this treasure. It's a promise. It's nothing short than the clearest explanation of the gospel's implication in our lives. There is No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, did you notice the conditions on this statement? Did you notice the ifs that are in there? So so it doesn't say there's there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you go to church, does it say that? If you give a tithe, does it say that? If you go to Bible study, does it say that? No, there are no conditions on this. This is a miraculous, marvelous weighty truth for you and I to hold to today. The implication of the gospel is that there in the, the courtroom of God as the, as the judiciary for sin, you will one day stand at judgment. And do you know what you're going to say as you stand there? Romans 8 verse 1. The only name on your lips will be that of Jesus Christ. For there is no Judgment. There is no condemnation for you. Now, Paul says this with the word beginning, therefore. <laughs> now, this does lead us into about an hour and a half discussion because the therefore is referencing not only everything that Paul has just tracked through in eight chapters, but that which he has specifically worked through just in chapter seven. Um, I'd like to... Uh, Just draw a little bit of that out for you. So if you go back just a little bit in chapter 7, you're not going to really understand the great weight of this promise until you resonate with the problem that Paul has identified in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he says, we know that in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. All right, honest Christians in church this morning, anyone ever been there? 
Anyone ever feel like that? Man, there is this problem, this brokenness within humanity. He says a little bit further, if you go down to verse 21, you'll see as he kind of encapsulates the whole idea. So I find this law. He uses this word law. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. There's a law at work in your bodies. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Man, what, where did this evil come from? How did it get here? And, and here's, here's where the great truth comes. As Paul concludes chapter 7, he'll declare, Who's gonna, who can save me from this body of death? Because every time I want to do good, and we're in a series about doing good, um, I would be remiss as your pastor if I just said, hey, get out there and get busy. Because you know what you're going to find? If it was true for the Apostle Paul, it's going to be true for you as well. As soon as you seek to do good, guess what's right there also? Evil. It's a law. It's this unmissing pattern of how the world seems to work for broken sinners like you and I. Who will save me, Paul asks? Who will save me from this body of death? It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 25. So that's the therefore that we get this treasure from. Now, let me address two problems with this passage. Because when Christians sometimes read this, they think, uh, hey, no condemnation? (laughs) All right, live it up then, man. Eat, drink, and be merry because what does the Bible say? No condemnation. And so they fall off the side of the road into the ditch called licentiousness. Uh, We would know without question, and I don't need to take up 20 minutes of your time to flip through the New Testament to see why continuing in sin is an impossibility for those who have been born again. It's impossible. That's Romans chapter 6 primarily. There's another problem, however, though. And this is the one I think, if you're honest today, you will find a little bit more identifying. And the problem is, all right, so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus then I need to make sure I'm doing everything I need to do in order to be saved. And what happens is the pendulum swings all the way over to this side, where now what you find is Christians who are striving to please God, working tirelessly, trying to do everything you can to make God happy. A large product of this comes from maybe your upbringing or our culture at large because the only way you get promoted is if you perform. Come on, amen on that? Is that true, right? The only way in this world that you find promotion is if your performance is, is, is continually increasing. And so we falsely take that paradigm and we press it upon God thinking that now we need to work harder and continue to keep trying. And here's what happens. Because Christians have tried and strived and failed. Any amens on the failing? You've tried and tried and failed. Do you know what you do? We have, a, we have kind of a, a brokenness in us for a defense mechanism. Have you ever had just a really kind of a rough week? Have you, have you ever had a bit of depression in your life where the alarm clock goes off in the morning and you say, another day, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And you take the pillow and you do one of these, just like put it over your head. Anybody ever feel like that? Anyone feel like I just... Not again. I can't do this anymore. The same is true in the Christian life. There was, a, there was a Gallup poll that was done a few years back upon the percentage of Christians in the United States, and it topped beyond 
This was a few years ago, and so the the numbers are continuing to go down. Don't be surprised. Those who identify as a Christian continue to go down. But a few years ago, it was between 80 and 90 percent. The poll, the the poll guys continued to, to press. So of those people, how many would say that their relationship with Jesus Christ is the number one most important thing in their life? And you know what they found? It was only 25 percent. One out of every four Christians says Jesus is number one in my life. And if I think as to why that would be, I think it's kind of because, you know what? I tried church. I tried the Jesus thing. And you know what I found? I found judgment. That's what I found. I found when they said you should be doing Bible reading, you need to be spiritually disciplined. You need to be a prayer warrior. And I tried to do it. I failed. I failed. And the more that I'm preached at, the more that I hear that this is what you got to do, the more I find I am incapable of doing those things. And so you know what's easier to do? It's just easier to put my head under the pillow. And I think what we have for a lot of Christians are people who want Jesus, but they feel like they can never reach a measure of merit or to be good enough to actually impress God. You know, it's not about trying. It's about trusting. It's it's not about achieving. It's about receiving. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done for you. And this message needs to be said good and loud and clear. Because as you continue to try and strive and put forth effort, I guarantee you will continue to fall and fail as much as that effort is derived from your willpower, you need to go back to Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Ah, that's it. That's the key. The condemnation is presented to you and I when we stand alone. But on that day of judgment, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for sin, he stands between you and the righteous judgment of God over sin. And do you know what we do? We hide right behind him. (laughs) I mean, the, the wrath of God is present over sin. And do you know what I need to do? I need to find myself in the shadow of Jesus because if I am in him, there is no condemnation. A Christian writer, Watchman Nee, he gives an illustration of this for a a battle between um, uh, Japan and China. And they could not defeat the Chinese tank. They couldn't defeat the tank until they came up with a strategy. They would take a sniper and the sniper would shoot a well-placed bullet right at the large metallic side of the tank so that it would resonate with a loud bing right in the and then they and then they would stop. And a couple minutes later, pow, they'd shoot another one at the tank. Bing. And then they'd stop and they'd wait. Very patient. A couple more minutes. Pow. Bing. And do you know what? After the third or fourth time, do you know what would happen? The driver of the tank would open the hatch and would poke his head out to see if he could find where that was coming from. And then guess what they would do? They would take care of him. Yeah. You know, this is what the evil one wants to do for you. The devil's strategy is to continually ping, attack, condemn, condemn. You're not good enough to try to lure you out. 
to try to get you in your own effort, in your own strength to say, I I, I guess I got to do more. I guess I better get busy. And when you do, that's when you've left the safety of Jesus. And you've tried to attempt to do it on your own again because it's in Christ. It's those who are in Christ that are those who enjoy the promise of having no condemnation. Stay hidden. Stay concealed in his love and his power and his ability. We have this verse in Romans 6. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages. That's, that's like work. This is the work you and I put forth. It results in what? Life? No. No, your effort, your willpower, your ability. It's like filthy rags before God. It ultimately will rise to the level of wrongdoing and will and, and give birth to death. But the gift of God is eternal life in, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the first one. Let's look at the second one. As we're working through Romans 8, uh, the verse 2 is now going to tell us what God has done through Jesus. Verse 2 says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You didn't do this. God did this through Jesus for you. Now, I want to talk just for a second here about the difference between sin and the law of sin. I want to talk about the difference between death and the law of death. Have you noticed the term law showing up here? I, I got to make sure we understand what, what that word is doing, because there's no mistake what Paul is attempting to do. He's drawing this from chapter seven. He's already developed it. If you if you look with me once more, go back in your Bible, just a little bit. Chapter seven, he, he says in verse 23, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin. So let me talk about the difference here between sin and the law of sin. Sin, by itself, is wrongdoing. Anyone in here ever sin? Let me get some interaction. I'll make sure you're with me today, all right? So yes, sin is a reality in our lives. Without Jesus, it's the kind of reality that never ends. So it's a law. Let me me give you an example. It's like the law of gravity. I have a water bottle here, right? What's going to happen if I let go? How do you know? How do you know that you're so confident it's going to fall? Why do you, come on kids, why is it going to fall? Gravity. Because every single time I've dropped something, it's not floated in midair. Every single time. Do you know what it does? It falls. Because it's a law. This happens all the time. Except, what if I did this? What if I took the water bottle... And I dropped it. What happened now? It's not falling anymore. Do you know why? Because I've introduced a second law. I've introduced a law that's actually greater than the law of gravity. The law of my power, the law of my ability, is now superseding the law that exists, such that I have conquered it. I actually have the ability to beat gravity, which is a law. It happens everywhere on earth, everywhere you go. Drop anything and it'll fall. But look right here. I've introduced a second law. 
This is what Paul means when he describes what God has done for you and I. Sin is going to be a reality in the Christian's life. But you don't have to. You used to without Jesus. Sin would have been rampant in your life everywhere you went, everywhere you go. Sin is always going to find victory over you. But he gives a second law. And it's the law of the spirit of, say it with me, right here in the middle, the spirit of, ah, that's Easter. That's Easter. Your sins and mine, they were paid for on the cross. But if Jesus never rose from the grave, you would still be left with only the best you can do. But because Jesus is alive, and because Jesus has ascended to the Father such that the Spirit can come now live within us, there is another law. Now, just to make sure you don't think I'm making this up, it actually says it. The law of the Spirit of life has set you and I free from the law of sin, but there's one other half to it, sin and death. Now, what what happens to dead people? They stay what? They stay dead. How how many times out of a hundred does that happen? All the time. Happens all the time. It's a law. This is how it works. You, everywhere you go, every funeral you go to, you will find dead people staying dead. Now, you could go over to the Channing um, uh, uh, Cemetery and uh, you could sit there all night long and, and try, try to watch. Do you know what you won't see? I won't see anybody coming back. Except this one time. Not in Channing. It was in a tomb over, over in Jerusalem. A one man died three days later. He was alive. He has broken the law and now has offered this to you and I so that if we had time and working through the rest of Romans 8, we would find that resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what's offered to you. The spirit of life that now lives within those who trust in Jesus Christ will make you alive as well and give life to your mortal bodies though they die. I want to make sure that we understand the difference here between sin and the law of sin. You'll see this as well in Romans 6. Paul says this in verses 6 through 10. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This is the same pattern that you and I are invited into. All right, that second. Third is this. What has God done for us? So the preposition here is now something he does for you. This one is probably the best of all, but I'll spend the least amount of time on it. Paul says, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh or the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, This verse in Galatians Paul says similarly, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God. Watch this now. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, 
Christ died for nothing. If you had the ability... Now, who, who's somebody who's really good in our church? Who, who, who's the best Christian? Don't say it out loud because that'll ruin it, right? But think, who's the best Christian in our church? Right, everybody got somebody in your mind? Whoever, whoever that is? We all think it's Helen. I know. We won't say it. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, no matter who they are, they still have sin. There is nobody who has the ability to achieve the level of righteousness that the law declared except for Jesus. And if they could, imagine. Imagine if somebody could. Well, then Jesus died for nothing. And do you know what you really need to do? You need to work harder. You need to be more like that person. And if you were just better, if you were just more like them, then maybe you could be righteous as well. But here's the problem. What the law was powerless to do, why? Because it was weakened by, Paul says, the flesh. But what he means here by flesh is not like your skin and bones and hair. What he means is the sin curse that envelops our bodies. There's there's a similar passage that maybe you've heard on a a Good Friday. Um, As Jesus is in the garden uh, with his disciples, he tells them to do what? Does anyone remember? This is, this is late at night. They're supposed to be watching and praying, right? But what do these, these disciples do instead? They fall asleep. And Jesus comes back and he says these words, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, the sinful nature, it just can't, it just can't do it. It just can never achieve the righteousness that God demands. And so, guess what? (laughs) This is awesome. God did what you couldn't do. Let me get an amen on that. That's a really good spot for an amen. Ready? God did. Amen. He did what you could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Don't get confused. Jesus had no sin. He's in the likeness of humanity. Fully human. Fully God. So not like us. Fully God. But just like you and I. Fully human. So in our likeness, we find that he condemns sin in the flesh. In his son on the cross. This is what God has done for you. Now imagine... Imagine if the door was open and you could escape death, but you kept jumping. Eh, I'll get it. Hold on, Jesus. I'll get it. You're never going to get it. Imagine if somebody prepared for you a beautiful meal, just a wonderful, bountiful dinner, and you're seated at the table and you say, well, let let, let me get up and make something. It's it's been done. It's, It's been served. Imagine you're at a restaurant and you get a meal and, and the bill is too much to pay, but then someone pays it for you and you say, no, let, I want to pay it anyways. You know what you'd call a person like that? Probably at best you'd call them ungrateful. At worst, you'd call them nuts. What's wrong with you? The door's open, man. Why are you jumping? You're never going to reach it. Go. Go. Look what's been done for you. The meal's been prepared. Eat. You don't have to make anything. That's stealing from the glory of the cook. Look what they made for you. The bill has been paid. Why are you searching your pockets for scraps? you got nothing. It's been paid. This is what God has done for you and I. Um, lastly, fourthly is this. And this is now an important one. This is where we're going to land for the last couple minutes of our time. What has God done 
or what he does in us. What is God doing in us? So verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And this is the place where we run into trouble because people read this and they think, see, I need to live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, except what you have missed is this. God has already done something for you. Now he desires to do something in you. This is not you doing it. This is not you with your own willpower and effort just reaching down with your bootstraps and being like, you know what? I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. and I'm going to pray like those Puritans did. And then I'll be a good Christian. You will fail. Instead, what you and I need to do is we need to yield ourselves and instead trust in God so that his work will be done in us, not by us. Does everybody understand the distinction here? This is, this is a primary distinction that we have to understand. Paul says something very similar in the book of Ephesians. Watch this. He says, God raised us up with Christ. Can you raise yourself up? Turn to your neighbor and say, nope. Well, turn to your other neighbor and say, neither can you. That's right. You can't raise yourself up. God raised you up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship, his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. How? He has prepared in advance for us to do. It's not the working of your ability. It's the outworking of God's ability in you. Are you guys with me on this? This is a crucial, crucial understanding for us to get. Because otherwise, Romans 8, 1 through 4 becomes a condemnation over us. It says there is no condemnation until you misapply verse 4 and think now it's up to you. Because it's not. It's not. It is up to God. He will work it out in your life. So what, what do we do with this? I just have a couple of conclusions for us. Number one, what Jesus has done has given me and you hope and motivation. Not for striving in your strength. Not for peace and patience and purity that comes from your ability. It comes from his ability in you. So judgment day is going to look pretty bad for anybody who doesn't have themselves safely within Jesus. But if you are, guess what that day is? It's hopeful. You have hope. And you have a motivation to become more conformed to the likeness of your Savior. To look more like Jesus. There's another problem that we have. Too, too many people think of God as somebody who is in the business of retailing and blessings. Think with me now for a moment. Have you ever prayed for patience? Anybody ever pray for patience? And anyway, said, oh, Lord, I... I need, I need more peace in my life. You ever prayed for peace? Here's the problem. God is not like a, a retail salesperson 
offering a, a, like an auctioneer. Who needs peace? No, do I see one dollar, two dollar, three dollar? Who, who needs? He, he's not in the business of just handing out blessings. Instead, do you know what it is that you need? You don't need peace. You don't need patience. You don't need purity as somebody who treats God like a commodity of giving me these attributes. Do you know what you need? You need Jesus. That's what you need. And then having Jesus, Jesus will work out within you peace and patience and purity. Do you see the difference though? It's so subtle, but it's the difference between you actually achieving the blessing or or receiving the blessings of God and you continually trying to achieve them on your own. And this is why I think we have Christians who put their pillow over their head and they just say, I can't do it. I'm not even going to try anymore because it's too hard. Number two, uh, what the Holy Spirit has done has freed you from sin. He's freed you from sin. Just for sake of time, I won't have us all turn there, but I was going to have us do a a little Bible study through Galatians chapter 5, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with the work or the acts of the flesh. Let Let me just explain that for just a minute. Your flesh produced works. God doesn't ask you for works. He asks you for fruit. There's a difference. There's a difference between the work that you and I would do and the fruit that's grown within us. Does a peach tree have to try to make peaches? It just does. It's just, that's just what it does. Because that's what it is. And so if you have the Spirit of God in you, sin used to be your master. Sin used to be the one calling the shots, but you've been freed from the law of sin. You've been freed. So now the spirit can do what? He can produce within you the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience. Again, it's the work of God in you, not your striving for it. Thirdly, what God has done has enabled you to do good. And I want to just direct your attention one last time to verse four, and then we're going to wrap it up. He says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the sinful nature, but live according to the spirit. There's two things I have to share with you that the spirit will work out in you in order to do good. The first is this. Notice in verse four, it's not a work, but it's a walk. So your Bible hopefully says, um, do, do not walk according to the flesh. My, Bible, my NIV says, do not live. It means the same thing. The Greek word there means the kind of the idea of walking in a direction, walking around. It's the, it's the directional flow of your life. But it's not a work. It's a walk. The second thing is this. Who is the one achieving this? Is it you? Look what the text says. Who do not live according or walk according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And what that means is that it implies submission. It implies your submission to the Spirit. It can be so discouraging to try to be a good Christian in a world that's looking for you to fail. You will fail. John helps us see, he who says he's without sin deceives himself. So sin exists. But do you know what's been broken? The law of sin. And you will find the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of your life as you yield your life to the Spirit's leading. So number one, it's not a work, it's a walk. And number two, 
It's not something that you are leading on. It's the, oh, help me out here. Is it Carrie Underwood? Jesus, take the wheel. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. The story of my life is that I'm not in the driver's seat anymore. The Spirit of God is in the driver's seat. I yield to the direction He wants us to go. Sometimes I'm like, hey man, let's go. It's Easter Sunday. Wrap it up, Pastor. Like sometimes I'm like, come on, let's let's get where we need to go. Other times the Spirit says, hold on, pump the brakes. And then sometimes we're like, you know, I don't really want to go. I don't know if I want to be a missionary. I don't know if I want to go talk to my neighbor. And the Spirit says, come on, let's go. Who are you listening to? Who are you yielding to? Right? So God has done for you to enable you to do for him. So what do we do with this? Just a couple of things very briefly. Number one, you and I need to be honest about the true problem. And the problem is sin. The problem is sin. If you look again in verse three, it says, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh or the sinful nature. That's the problem. It will do you no good to pretend like sin is not a problem. You need to learn, as the Bible lays out, that confession, which is saying what God says about your sin, is what we need to do. Stop trying to justify it. Stop trying to make it seem like it's actually okay. It's not as bad as them. Everybody's doing it. Look, time out. You're, You're not actually addressing the problem. Sin is the problem. Since the, since the snow melted in my front yard, our little dogs have discovered all new smells that are in the front yard. Um, some other animals have gone number two, deer doo-doo. And, uh, and there, there was like a dead bird uh, somewhere. And do you know what my little dogs love to do in the springtime? They love to rub their bodies all over the, that stink. Just rubbing everywhere in it. And then they come in the house. I just... Happy as can be. Oh, and they stink. That's, that's a little bit like us with sin, you know. Now, I love, I love my dogs. God, God loves you. But if we're not true with what the problem is, we're carrying this stench with us, thinking it's okay. When it's not okay. So we have to be true. We have to be honest about where the problem lies, and it lies with sin. Secondly, this, you need to make sure that you are in Christ. You need to make sure that you're in Christ. I think of it a little bit like uh, the school bus. Do you remember being in like fourth grade, getting yelled at by the bus driver? Flunker, keep your hands in the bus. Nobody else? It was just me? Yeah, it was just me. This is what it says. Keep your hands and feet where? Inside. You make sure that we've done the same thing when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But it's kind of like a, a, a train or a subway. You know, the, please stand clear. The doors are closing. And you know what you can't do with Christianity? You can't stand with one foot in and one foot out. Because the doors are closing. And, and if you decide to get in, if you decide to really give your full trust to say, all right, I'm going to let the train take me where it wants to go. Do you know what you shouldn't do after that? You shouldn't be the type of person who's like, all right, everybody, let's, let's push. What? Sit down. Trust. God's got this. Stop trying to achieve it on your own. Come on, let's run together. Everybody run in place. Those are the type of people who pass judgment over the rest of us. Don't be that person. You have to get in. And when you're in, you have to trust. Here's the, here's the thing. You heard Don mention it this morning. 
If you are going to pray, God, forgive me for my sins. I confess my sins to you and I place my trust in you. You need to understand that in doing that, you have invited a person to reside in your heart. You're not treating God like a commodity. Hey, I need a little more forgiveness today, God. You got, I got more to do, but can I get some more forgiveness from you? Uh-uh, that's not how it works. If you've asked God for forgiveness, you've asked a person, the Holy Spirit, to come and take up residence in you. And you need to make sure then that you are yielding control over to this new person who wants to run your life for you, drive the direction of your life for you. Make sure that you're in Christ. Lastly is this, we need to walk in the Spirit by trusting in God and follow a risen Savior. Now the word is walk. That's the word that I have in, uh, in the Greek, peripateo. In, in English, it's live. Let me end with this, uh, with this last illustration. When I was about 13 years old, about the age that my son is, I went uh, hunting with my dad opening day deer season. And the day before, uh, we took a, a, a path, and he was going to sit over on a stand on the edge of a field, and I was going to sit kind of in a more wooded area. And so the day before, I was a little unfamiliar with the path, but my dad knew it. My dad knew it like the back of his hand. He knew right where he was, even though I was lost. And so he took these little reflectors. They were these tiny little pin, like thumbtacks, and he pressed them on the tree. And then he'd walk 15 yards further, and he'd press another one on a tree and another one. Because leaving at 4 o'clock in the morning was pitch dark. And if I had my headlamp or a flashlight, as I scanned the tree line, I'd see those little reflectors. Now, sure enough, the next morning, oh, dark 30. Uh, we, uh, we head out, and my dad takes off the path where he's, and now I'm by myself. Now I have to do what? I have to trust the path that has been laid for me. And I don't see like in the daytime. I see like a lamp onto my feet. I see just a little bit at a time. And I catch those reflectors. But do you know what in my heart, as a little 13-year-old, what I was thinking? I was thinking there was a wolf behind every tree. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> now, it took some time, but eventually I made it to the stand. And I, eventually I was able to do the purpose for which I was out there for. Christian, li- listen this morning. There's a purpose for you on this earth. It's to do good. How do you do good? It's a matter matter of of walking in the footsteps of your Savior, following the path that has been laid for you. And you're only at times going to see a little bit. Sometimes it's going to be hard and scary, but you're going to have to trust. And the greatest news of all is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The hymn writer says this, as we have many sleepy Christians today. He says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives all Fear is gone because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because, help me out, he lives. Let's pray this morning.